Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to LSE. Nice to see uh, such a large audience when uh, technically we're still on vacation. Uh, it says something about the uh, attractions of our speaker this morning. Uh, Michael Chert uh, is going to speak on security challenges 10 years after 9-11. Now, uh, in reverse order, we know Michael's been here already uh, in, in his capacity as Secretary of Homeland Security, which he was in the United States between 2005 and 2009. We're delighted to have him back. Uh, he's able to be as indiscreet as would be now that he hasn't got high office, so we're looking forward to that, Michael. Uh, but before that, he was a federal judge in the U.S. Courts of Appeal, Court of Appeals. Before that, a prosecutor. And then a clerk to Mr. Justice Brennan. I'm proud <coughs> about that, aren't I? One of the most uh, important and significant judges in the United States Supreme Court. And before that, even more importantly, he, he was at LSE, which dwarfs all other universities he may, have, may not have passed through. And uh, we're a little bit uh, tight for time, because uh, Michael needs to be away at about 10 to 11. So what we're going to do is we're going to go straight into the talk, and he's kindly said he's going to speak for about 25 or 30 minutes in order to free up space for some questions and answers. And I'll chair that bit, and I'll be quite tough on you all in that I'll want some pretty short questions and no speeches, and we'll try and pack in a lot to part two of the morning as well to make it a rewarding event at lots of different levels. So uh, let me, without further ado, uh, thanking him once again for having agreed to come to LSE, invite Michael to take my place. Here we are. Well, after that build-up, you probably think I'm going to be the Alistair darling of the Bush administration. It's not going to happen. Um, I don't have a book, so I have nothing to leak. Um, but uh, it is good to be here. Uh, it is true I was here, I was thinking about this this morning. F almost 40 years ago, I went to school here. And that was a really stunning thought, because 40 years is a huge amount of time, right? and a lot of things have happened. Uh, and I still remember um, you know, quite vividly my experience here as a general course student. Uh, but I, I must say it was a little remarkable for me to think about that span of years and how much has changed in the 40 years. I never could have envisioned, for example, <clears throat> the trajectory of what I wound up doing, and of course still less uh, what happened on September 11, 2001. Uh, I, I think the World Trade Center had been built um, when I was here. And I remember, <clears throat> you know, as someone who grew up in that general area, that whenever you looked over in the, in the direction of Manhattan, the towers were a, an overpowering landmark. And even when you were in Manhattan, <clears throat> they were kind of an ever-present uh, orientation point. And for that reason, um, it's not only the tremendous loss of life on September 11th, which has left a mark, but it is <clears throat> also the visible removal of such an iconic landmark. I mean, it's, you really cannot live in the New York area or be in New York and not be reminded on a daily basis about what happened. But I'm not here to um, talk about the emotional element as much as I am about the security element and the lessons and, and what I think September 11th meant for security challenges. And, and my, my theory is that, in fact, uh, although September 11th itself wasn't necessarily <clears throat> the causative effect of a major change in security, what it was was the um, the event that perhaps made manifest 
made obvious a change that had been going on for a number of years. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. If you go back to the uh, last century, to the Cold War, and back to the previous wars, we lived in a world where we had a kind of a binary view of security challenges. Uh, if there was a conflict between nation states, that was viewed as a war. We had a military. There's a whole set of doctrines and, and laws that apply. <clears throat> if there was a problem not involving another state, but involving a criminal gang or an individual, that was dealt with as a law enforcement matter, different set of institutions, different set of laws. And the two were really quite separate. And the challenge in any given case was to figure out if you had a security problem, which bucket it fell into. Is it a military problem? Is it a civilian problem? And then the appropriate authorities and laws would be engaged. But the reality is that that binary model <clears throat> had broken down by the end of the last century. And it broke down for two reasons. First of all, globalization really transformed and weakened the nation state. And it also empowered the network. So that for the first time, you began to have nation states that had less control over what was going on within their borders and networks that had a greater uh, impact on things going on in nation states. The second change was technology. The ability of smaller and smaller groups of people to leverage technology to cause more and more harm and destruction meant that the kinds of threats that we faced in the past that required a nation state to carry out the threat now can be carried out by a network that's not necessarily even backed by a nation state. And those two events, <coughs> as they, or those two trends, as they developed over the last decade or two of the 20th century, did not result in a change in the doctrine or the legal architecture or any of the institutions of our security structure, um, but unnoticed really began to transform the fundamental facts on the ground, what actually happens in the real world as opposed to our theory and our doctrine about what we expect to happen. <clears throat> so what 9-11 did was this. It made it clear that you could have an attack on the United States that was as damaging, if not more damaging, than any attack we'd experienced in a war, in terms of loss of life on a single day in the United States, that that attack could take place without the uh, encouragement or participation of another nation state, <clears throat> and that it could be carried out by a network. And that right, right away raised the question, how do we deal with this as a security challenge? Uh, it, it doesn't neatly fall into one bucket or another. You could argue, as some people did, well, it's a crime. It's just a very big crime. But it's not a crime when what it does is it actually not only kills an enormous number of people, but actually has a material and substantial impact on the economy and the physical landscape of a country. It's hard to describe that as a crime. Um, at the same time, it's not war in the conventional sense, because there's no massed army. People aren't wearing uniforms. <clears throat> They're relying upon deception as a means of entering the country rather than invading with brute force. So the facts turned out to demonstrate that the categories were simply inadequate to describe what was going on. Another way to look at it is this. Um, if you look at the onset of the nuclear age <clears throat> in 1945 when the United States dropped uh, atomic bombs in, on Japan, and then subsequently when atomic weapons were, were developed by the Soviet Union, that was another paradigm shift in the way we looked at security. Because although you could argue, and some people did, a bomb is a bomb is a bomb, and whether it's an atomic bomb or a conventional bomb, 
is just a matter of the number of people who get killed. In reality, we intuited that a nuclear bomb was a much different animal than a conventional bomb. And out of that intuition came a doctrine that basically created a red line against the use of nuclear weapons. The view being that if you cross that red line, you were in, in, a, in a space and conducting an activity that was dramatically different than a conventional war and uh, potentially catastrophic to the entire world. And I would argue that's why terrorism post 9-11 is not the terrorism that you had back in the days of the IRA or back in the days of the anarchists. In much the same way as a nuclear bomb relates to a conventional bomb, post 9-11 terrorism relates to old-fashioned terrorism, not just as a matter of quantity, but as a matter of quality. It's a qualitatively different challenge. And it is one that will not go away, because globalization and the network and technology will continue to increase the ability of small groups of people, whether they are in one place or spanning the entire globe, to do an awful lot of damage to our institutions and to our people. And I would argue that much of what (coughs) we need to do to think about the doctrine and the law arises out of the need to confront the fact that the old divisions and the old (coughs) assumptions about security have changed. Now, how did we react to this after September 11th? Well, I'd like to say first, I'd like to deal with it on a tactical level. Tactically, we looked at (coughs) what enabled global terrorism, and we realized that there were essentially three elements that that were indispensable to the network that carried out 9-11 and wanted to carry out other attacks. One was the ability to travel globally. Remember, 9-11, the leadership was in Afghanistan. Uh, The senior operatives were educated and radicalized in Germany. Some of the money came from the Middle East, and the attack actually was carried out in the United States. To make all that happen, people had to move around. And it was in that process of movement that they also exposed themselves and became most vulnerable to detection. A second key element and enabler was money. You had to be able to finance the attack. That meant financing the travel, financing the flying lessons, financing the development of equipment or training. And again, that money was globally, globally moving. So the ability to detect and interdict that money, again, created a vulnerability in terms of this global kind of of terrorism. And then the third element was communications. People had to be able to plan and talk to one another. And obviously, the internet and modern global telephones, satellite phones, things of that sort, were critical tools that the terrorists used in order to put together their plan, again, using operatives around the entire globe. But at the same time, as we came to understand, that created a a, a huge vulnerability. Because if you talk about a plan, then there's the possibility of detecting and intercepting that plan and disrupting it. So on a tactical level, as we looked at the global threat, we realized that travel, communication, and money, the three pillars of global terrorism, were also the three points at which it would be possible to intervene and prevent something from happening. And the key to succeeding in all of those things boils down to the word intelligence. Collection of intelligence, analysis of intelligence, integration of intelligence, and then acting on intelligence. It's what we call in the United States connecting the dots. In much the same way, again, as in the 20th century, when we worried about Soviet bombers or missiles coming into the West, and we used radar as our means of protection. 
Uh, radar is useless against people who come in by concealing themselves or pretending to be other than who they are. So the 21st century of radar is intelligence. And much of what you saw in a tactical, um, in a tactical sense in the United States, and I think here as well, involved increasing the capability to collect and analyze that intelligence. How do you do that? You do it, first of all, by monitoring things like the flow of the money. And I think you've read about a program the United States had uh, over a period of time using a, an interbank exchange to monitor transactions and money that would be connected to terrorists. Uh, interception of communications <clears throat> is another way you get intelligence, human intelligence either questioning people or inserting people in as operatives or creating informants are another way to get intelligence. And it turns out that in this kind of a, of a struggle, the key way, in fact, the indispensable way to get at those vulnerabilities I've described is in the development and the refining of this intelligence. And that's where a lot of security is going to go in the future. Now, the challenge here is we built our, our legal architecture for intelligence collection an analysis and operation based on that old 20th century model. There was the military side and in the United States a very strict division between the intelligence agencies which are allowed to operate in a, in a military environment and those that are able to operate in a, in a domestic civilian environment. <clears throat> but the problem is when the enemy in many cases is in your own country because they've either snuck in or because they've actually managed to uh, mobilize and recruit operatives within the United States or within Great Britain, that old division between overseas and away is one side and home is another side doesn't work anymore. It creates a gap, a seam between the two parts of the whole. So we've needed to rethink our architecture to take account of the fact that that division is not factually accurate any longer. And that's caused a great deal of stress. Um, if you follow the debates, the legal debates in the United States, most often <clears throat> what they boil down to is an argument that somehow you've got to keep the division between what is going on overseas, which is viewed as kind of war, and what's going on domestically, which is viewed as law enforcement. That no longer works. And so what you're seeing in the United States, and I suspect you're seeing here as well as an evolution, away from that binary system in the law to one that is a little bit more um, of a spectrum in which the legal tools and the intelligence authorities that you use are determined based on a series of <clears throat> policy distinctions about where you want to draw the line, but it turns out not to be a very bright line. In some circumstances, you will use traditional military intelligence authorities domestically, and to the contrary, in some cases, we'll use domestic law enforcement overseas. It may surprise you to know that the FBI, which is uh, our equivalent of your special branch, <clears throat> as well as your MI5, often goes overseas to collect evidence. One of the things they collect is fingerprints. If we go into a, a battlefield or a, a safe house and we discover bomb-making materials or uh, paper or anything that the terrorists have left, uh, we undergo the process called exploitation, which means we send a team of FBI agents and they collect the crime scene evidence. They're not doing it in order to present a case to court. They're doing it because their skill at lifting fingerprints and uh, reconstructing documents, which are not traditional military skills, are very useful in terms of rounding out our intelligence picture. 
So we've blended both sides of the spectrum in pursuing our activities, whether they're at home or away. And I think that's going to be something that can, continues far into the future. <clears throat> so that's where we are tactically. Strategically, I still think we have not yet resolved or gotten our heads around this idea that security is no longer neatly divided between military and law enforcement. I would argue that the concept of national security is now a much broader concept than is embraced by the old notion of a Ministry of Defense or a Defense Department and the notion of a police agency uh, or uh, a home office. In fact, the department I headed for four years, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, in a way was a reflection of the fact that you needed to embrace both elements of the military and elements of law enforcement, as well as elements of the private sector and civil society, in looking at security holistically. That security means not just preventing things or punishing them after they occur, but hardening and, and hardening the target and reducing vulnerability, and also building a certain sense of resilience and the ability to mitigate by response. So security is not a, a thin, narrow silo, but actually embraces a number of different functions that begin with getting intelligence to stop bad people from coming into the country and end with developing the capability to mitigate, <clears throat> mitigate the damage and respond and rescue people <clears throat> that limit the consequences of a terrorist attack. And because no institution prior to 9-11 had been designed to look holistically across that entire spectrum, <clears throat> excuse me, what you needed was a department that would embrace all those things. So the Department of Homeland Security embraced <clears throat> not only the border protection, air, sea, and land, but the protection for our domestic infrastructure, uh, which includes not only transportation, but communication, the power grid, and an awful lot of critical infrastructure that is in private hands. It embraced not only prevention and having armed presence necessary to protect certain kinds of facilities, but also resilience and response, crisis management, the ability to take uh, a disaster or an emergency when it occurs and manage all the elements of the government that have to respond, which include police agencies, emergency response agencies, um, medical agencies in many instances, all of which have to be coordinated in a way so they operate seamlessly together. And this was a much bigger vision of security than I think was conceived of back in the prior century. And I think from a strategic standpoint, that really is the direction in which we are now headed and have to be headed in the modern world. Because the problems we face, whether they are biological hazards, explosions, chemical hazards, even natural disasters, those problems will not necessarily come with labels. We will not necessarily always know who's responsible or how th these things came to pass, but we have to have the universal capability to deploy the tools of government uh, involving multiple agencies in order to deal with those kinds of emergencies. And that is, to me, the face of national security in a post-9-11 world. Now let me <clears throat> take you from the strategic and the tactical to the operational and to spend a little bit of time talking about what I think the current threat picture is. And I think this is a case where there's some good news and some bad news. 
As people have been saying, I think, in the last month or so in the United States, uh, there's no question over the last 10 years we have been quite successful in reducing the threat from al-Qaeda at its core in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Now, that's not — I didn't say we eliminated it. We've reduced it. We've reduced it because we have managed to eliminate, one way or another, uh, numerous leaders and operatives of al-Qaeda in parts of Pakistan and parts of Afghanistan <clears throat> using various means, which I won't go into. But obviously, the bin Laden um, effort, which resulted in his death, is an example of eliminating the top leader. Uh, the consequence of this is that al-Qaeda is under pressure. And when they are under pressure, that may, means they are less capable and less able to take steps to think about how to attack us. The bad news is that this pressure has resulted in a distribution of the ideology across a network. And this goes in line with what I said earlier about the fact we're dealing with a network world. It's no longer just Pakistan and Afghanistan we have to be concerned about. We have to be concerned about Yemen, Somalia, al-Qaeda in the Maghreb in North Africa. These groups are now becoming more and more self-sufficient. They're capable of mounting their own um, attacks. We saw, for example, in December 2009, uh, the Nigerian who got on a plane headed for Amsterdam and then to Detroit wearing a bomb on, concealed on his person, uh, appears to have been recruited and trained in Yemen. Uh, Major Nadal Hassan, who is a U.S. Army doctor who became radicalized and killed uh, over a dozen people at Fort Hood, apparently got radicalized over the Internet by Anwar Laki in Yemen. So although the good news is we put a lot of pressure on the core of the traditional leadership of al-Qaeda, the bad news is that we have a new set of leaders. And that set of leaders may be in many ways more dangerous, because they may no longer want to simply repeat the tactics that they used in the past. They may be prepared to embrace new tactics. And that could include Mumbai-style attacks. Uh, it could include cyber attacks. It could include, include more emphasis on chemical and biological weapons. So we're dealing with an element of, of unpredictability, which is going to make it, I think, challenging for us to adapt our responses to what I think will be the new phase of al-Qaeda. Good news and bad news, at least in the United States and I think here as well, we've made it much more difficult to bring operatives from overseas into our country to carry out attacks. 9-11 was carried out by 19 people who came from overseas and, and entered the U.S. and were able to build a capability here, which they executed on September 11, 2001. Because of what the United States has done at its border, the likelihood of being able to do that again, bringing operatives in from overseas, is much reduced. Not eliminated, but reduced. The bad news is, for that reason, al-Qaeda has, over the last years, deliberately work to increase its capability to recruit and train people who are actually citizens of the countries they are targeting, whether it's the United States or, or Great Britain or Denmark or any place else in the world. And that's what we call homegrown terrorism. Uh, we always had a little bit of that uh, after 9-11, but it's increased in the last couple of years. And the reason it's increased is because the terrorists have recognized that if you recruit and radicalize somebody who is 
an American citizen, you don't have a problem getting them in the country. They're here already. And therefore, you've eliminated one of the major obstacles to carrying out an attack. Now, it's a little harder to carry out a very sophisticated attack doing it by remote control, <clears throat> but it's plainly possible. And we saw this again in Fort Hood uh, when over a dozen people were killed and, and several dozen were wounded by a single individual who got radicalized. So that is going to be, a, uh, again, a, an increasing challenge for all of us and requires us to focus not only on the kind of blunt end of the security issue, but on the more subtle set of issues about how do we uh, negate that recruiting effort? How do we make sure that al-Qaeda is not able to appeal to people with their ideology? How do we push back on that? And this, of course, again, it can't be a government-only effort. It's got to really be rooted in the communities where these recruiting efforts are taking place. A third element, which I mentioned briefly, has to do with cyber. Uh, this is probably the one great area of uh, <clears throat> security where I think we've done less than I would like in terms of reducing the risk, although we're beginning to make some progress. Uh, you don't have to be uh, you know, particularly f uh, focused on the subject to read the newspapers and see that more and more we are developing uh, very dangerous, costly intrusions into our cyber systems where a lot of our assets are kept and where a lot of our businesses transacted. Somebody estimated a trillion dollars of intellectual property has been stolen. That's a direct impact to the economy. That is a real shot at economic growth for the societies here and in the United States. Uh, you have literally millions of people who have had data stolen by criminals who use that money in order to, who use that data in order to get money, steal money on, in massive frauds that again are global in nature and very, very difficult to respond to. And we've even seen evidence, we saw it in Estonia in 2007, in Georgia 2008, of the use of cyber as a way of actually uh, carrying out war making to, to uh, degrade the command and control system or the banking system or the government uh, of a state in order to make it difficult for them to conduct their business. In Estonia in 2007, the government and the banks uh, had several days where they could scarcely function because hackers were coming in to actually disrupt those systems. In Georgia, when the Russians invaded in 2008, they accompanied the ground offensive with a cyber offensive that was designed to try to handicap the communication effort on the part of the, of the Georgian government. So this problem of cyber security, uh, which again has that characteristic element of being global and highly technological, uh, this problem is going to be, in my view, at the cutting edge of where we're going to be dealing with threats over the next uh, decade or so. Finally, before I throw it up into questions, um, I want to talk about three related security issues that don't really deal with al-Qaeda, but I think are emerging, uh, maybe, maybe to greater salience. Um, one is the issue of transnational crime. Uh, we've always had transnational crime and organized crime. What concerns me, again, because of the increased global capability of, of networks and the increased uh, technological leverage that's available to networks, is that this problem would become greater and greater. And, and we've seen two manifestations of this that I want to uh, talk a little bit about. One is in Central America, 
In Central America now, in Mexico and in other countries in Central America, there are powerful drug cartels. And by the way, to call them drug cartels is actually probably a misnomer. They're organized criminal cartels that do, they're kind of conglomerates of crime. They do kidnappings, extortions, drug dealing, human smuggling, sexual slavery, anything you want to describe, they are involved in. And the tactics they have adopted increasingly are the tactics that they saw on the internet or on television in Baghdad or in Afghanistan. Beheadings, blowing, blowing up uh, car bombs, blowing up buildings. There was recently a fire set in a casino in Mexico that resulted in a, in a, a tremendous loss of life uh, that was set by an organized criminal group. This is a tactic of terrorism. The only difference between these transnational groups and a terrorist organization is that the transnational criminal groups have not yet wrapped themselves up in some kind of ideology. My own view is it won't be very long before one of these criminal leaders looks in the mirror and says, you know, I'm not a thug, I'm a political leader. And he'll, you know, he'll cloak what he's doing in some kind of a half-baked political theory about why he's fighting against the oppression. And then he'll be off to the races like a terrorist. The second phenomenon we may see is a convergence of transnational criminal groups and, and, and terrorist groups. We saw that in Colombia back uh, in the last couple of decades when the FARC, which was a political revolutionary group, began to get involved in the drug trade. Uh, they, they basically, uh, first they got into a <clears throat> protection relationship with the drug cartels, and eventually they themselves got involved in actually moving drugs. More recently, we've seen the phenomenon of al-Qaeda in North Africa actually enabling and providing assistance to drug dealers who are moving narcotics from South America, staging them in North Africa, and then moving them into Europe. So again, this, this is a, a dangerous and powerful combination we're going to have to watch. The third phenomenon I want to talk about very briefly before I open it up to questions is the Arab Spring. Uh, of course, we're all fascinated to see what's going to happen here. And it's inspiring to see young people get out and demonstrate for freedom and for their rights and for the rule of law. Uh, what we don't know is where it all turns out. On the one side, we haven't seen many people getting out into the street and talking about how they want to you know, uh, follow the path of bin Laden. So the, the ideology of al-Qaeda and of other similar terrorist groups has not apparently captured the attention of the people who are in the street, the great mass of people who are rebelling. But that doesn't mean it's going to wind up that way. And those of you who've studied history know, if you go back to the uh, revolution of 1917 in Russia, it began with the Mensheviks, who were basically social democrats, and in the end the Bolsheviks took over. Sometimes a, a well-disciplined small group can wind up cap capturing the momentum of a, a revolution and turning it into something else. So um, am I hopeful about the Arab Spring? Yes. Am I somewhat skeptical? I have a little bit of skepticism. Depending on how this turns out, it could have a huge impact on our uh, national security. If it turns out well, this may be a very powerful blow against the narrative of al-Qaeda and similar ideologies, which may actually help us dry up some of the recruiting. But if it turns out that we wind up with weak states or ungoverned states, we're going to have platforms in which terrorist groups will be able to flourish and conduct their recruiting and their training and even their, their, their experiments with uh, chemical and biological weapons. 
Weak states, states where you don't have control over territory, are breeding grounds for criminality and terrorism. And so it's very much in our interest to hope that the societies that arise in the Arab Spring are free, follow the rule of law, but also have stability and control over their own domains. Uh, otherwise, we're going to wind up with a very mixed blessing. So we, we live in a, you know, there was a period of time, I guess, in the early 1990s, when someone famously wrote a book called The End of History. And it, it, you know, people argued, you know, this is it, the triumph of Western liberalism. Uh, Soviet communism is over, and it's going to be decades of peace. It turned out that in many ways, what happened was a uh, bad, but a very stable security environment was replaced by a much more fragmented and unstable security environment. We don't face the possibility of an annihilation by nuclear weapons with the same degree of risk that we did maybe 30 years ago, but the possibility of serious harm uh, and loss of life is much greater because of the very fragmented nature of the threat. So we've got to get our heads into the new space and the new architecture legal and doctrinal of what we face. And I think that's going to be the challenge for a lot of the folks who are sitting in this room. So with that, I'm happy to take some questions. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, there's already a hand up. Who knows how I operate? So we've got one guy at the back. Uh, we've got this lady over here. We've got somebody. We've got this gentleman over here <coughs> to get us started. Uh, deploy the same discipline in your questioning as we've seen from our speaker, who is exactly what he said he would be, but preface your remark with who you are and where you're from, so we have a bit of a feel for it. Can we start with the gentleman? If it is a gentleman, I can't quite see. It's a lady. Excuse me. Right at the back. Hi, my name's Kim Husbands. Um, Can you speak up a little bit? Hi, my name's Kim Husbands. Um, I currently live in um, East London, and um, I was wondering about... This, this whole thing about um, using um, uh, legal ways to hold data in, let's say there's a, an, an investigation on a business and you've grabbed, that may or may not turn conclusive, and you've grabbed information, let's say uh, uh, data, you know, to just go through it and things of that nature, would that in turn cripple the business and then make it um, a type of business that would not function? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the very last part of the question. Would that cripple the business and make it a type of business that would not function while ongoing investigations yeah. are looking into what may or may not be? The question no. was... It, can, we, can we take... Oh, sure, yeah, okay. And we, okay. I'll make a note. Then. Okay. Yeah, uh, but you've got it, have you? Thanks, right. Thanks Kim. Uh, we had the gentleman who's right here, who's my, I got attention to a little before, this gentleman here, and then we have the person over here. So, sir. My name's Dr. Alan Cleary from London Premier College. Um, I was in New York on 9-11 living there and was able to assist the emergency services. In fact, if I hadn't been at a meeting at the Harvard Club, I would have been in the World Trade Center. Um, my question is, when I first went to the United States, um, at least one of the Eastern Seaboard airports had experienced police officers um, behind one-way glass. Um, monitoring arrivals 24 hours a day and bringing out uh, anybody they thought was suspicious. Inevitably, um, some racial and other groups were chosen in excess of perhaps one, one would expect. 
Um, and my question is, does our present concern with equality and political correctness inhibit that aspect of our security? Thank you, thank you very much, Anne. And we had somebody who might caught the eye off. I think it's that lady there. And that will be three, and then over to you. Uh, right. Thank you. Anna Madveva, London School of Economics. Um, you mentioned uh, that Al-Qaeda suffered uh, various tactical defeats, but ideology is still very much there and drives the expansion of networks globally. My question is, how effective you think were the measures to reduce its appeal, or is it really possible to um, somehow deal with the ideology which is behind this potential security challenge? All right, let me, uh, let me deal with the questions in turn. On the issue of, of seizure of data, um, and let me, let me, I want to distinguish between two things. Um, when information is seized overseas, I described um, circumstances where we go in and, you know, there's a, a safe house or something in a battlefield. Um, there's no issue in terms of disrupting a business because you're dealing with a battlefield. Uh, in the United States, and I can't speak to what your system here does, <clears throat> in order to obtain information from a business, you have to have some kind of a legal process. Uh, either a national security letter or a subpoena, or in some instances, uh, you get a search warrant. Now, normally, when you subpoena or request documents, uh, you don't take everything that business has. They make a, a duplicate set. So they're able to continue to function in their business. Uh, if you actually get a search warrant, which is issued by a judge, then you may, in some circumstances, seize all the documents and there won't be copies, usually unless you're dealing with a business that's involved in, crim in, in crime as a professional criminal organization, the government does allow for documents to be returned to let the business continue to operate. So, uh, and, you, and, and the business can apply to a judge if you want to get material returned so you can conduct your business, for example, computers and, and things of that sort. Um, so it, it's, there's not a usually a tremendous problem. Sometimes there's a little bit of a delay, but we do have a process in place, <clears throat> excuse me, to allow you to get, to get that information. I think Kim, Kim if you business in a different country. Yeah. Yeah. Fairly, fairly briefly, Mike, yeah, we get another round right. of yeah, the question was, I, I think it's a complicated legal yeah, issue when you're dealing, you know, transnationally. Um, on the issue of border security and whether we're handicapped by political correctness, uh, I think the answer to that is no. The, now, the way the Border Patrol and the border inspectors operate in the U.S. is that they don't racially profile, but what they do do is they look at behavior, um, we do have records on people who come in the U.S. We take fingerprints. If we match fingerprints to something dangerous, that is a, a sign that there's a problem. Um, so what we do rely upon are characteristics of persons travel, their background. We collect a fair amount of information, including passenger information, and that allows us to make behavior-based decisions which don't wind up getting us uh, in, in the field of, ra of racial profiling. Finally, on the question about we've succeeded to deal some tactical defeats to al-Qaeda, but how do we deal with the ideology? I, I think that's a challenge for the government for this reason. 
The ideology of al-Qaeda is not, in my view, really Muslim religious ideology. It's, it's, a, it's a fake ideology that uses the language of Islam in order to attract recruits. However, to have an American government official make that argument is pointless because I'm not a, an, an Islamic scholar. What's important is to enable the Muslim community to make that argument. And what we've said to, to um, Muslims both in the United States and overseas is, it's your children who are being recruited to put bombs on. It's very much in your interest to turn to the people who are perverting the religion and, and mouthing this extremist ideology and for you to come up with a counter-narrative to come up with, a, with a, a more accurate explanation of what is really uh, religiously sanctioned and what is not religiously sanctioned. And I think in the end, that's why I say it's got to be community involvement that is the long-term key to battling this ideological issue. Uh, I'm going to try and get four in, and I've got the gentleman with the shirt and tie, not because you have a shirt and tie, sir. Then I've got this gentleman whose hand is up just there, and I've got this lady here, and I've got this lady here. Sorry, there's a huge number of people with their hands up. We're going to do those four, and we won't hold you too long. Great. Can you remember that we have five minutes to turn this round? So let's set a good precedent, as we lawyers say. Sir, your name and succinct question. Okay, Toby Feakin from the Royal United Services Institute. Um, I had a question which combined two of your points, which is mainly around adaptability um, of both terrorist tactics and also of government's ability to be adaptive also, and also your element talking about technology. Basically, what I want to understand is, is how do governments between, become adaptable and, and quick at responding to technological change and the change of terrorist tactics. It seems to me that there's not great evidence to show that that's possible, and sometimes large bureaucracies are not so good at that. How do we change that in the modern security era? Great. Thanks, Tony. And does the gentleman just who's now receiving the microphone. Excellent. Okay. I'm Shaquille from Richard Hale School. You touched briefly on cyber terrorism, and I was wondering if the development of the inherently more open Web 2.0 might yield even greater threats for cyber terrorism. The microphone's a little too close. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I was wondering if the development of the inherently more open Web 2.0 service might yield even greater threats for cyber terrorism and the recruitment of radicals. And a minister from South, I was wondering about the homegrown terrorism case the UK prevent um, strategy seems to have failed. So what are the possible alternatives? Thank you. All right. Let, let, Do you want anybody to repeat? Uh, you just question about it. What was the specific question about homegrown terrorism in the what, UK? What are the ways to deal with it? Because the current prevent strategy right. seems to have failed. Um, all right. Let me de I'll deal with the cyber questions. Except last, I'll deal with the other two questions first. Adaptability, uh, bureaucracies do have difficulty adapting. Um, it is challenging as the terrorists consider their, their tactical changes to begin to address changes in how we conduct our security. Part of what we try to do is to anticipate where things may go in the next uh, you know, few years, where there might be some tactical or strategic changes by the terrorists. What makes it hard is you, when you build a, a bu government budget and you have to get things through Congress or Parliament and you have to come up with rules, that is a very cumbersome process. 
And the consequence is you, that tends to slow up the adaptability. I don't have an easy solution except we tried very hard to, uh, to fashion as much discretion as possible at a lower level operationally so people can turn things around quickly without getting, you know, having to run up the chain of command. That was kind of the best solution that we had. On the issue of homegrown terrorism, I mean, the suggestion being that the old prevent policy in the UK has not been a resounding success. Um, I can't judge that. I can tell you we've struggled with this ourselves. We don't really understand what motivates everybody to be <coughs> radicalized. You know, there are some people who get radicalized whom you'd expect to be likely targets for recruitment. Young males who are unemployed and disaffected and alienated. But then there seem to be a remarkable number of medical doctors who have become suicide bombers. You had the attack in, on Glasgow Airport. I think they were two doctors. Uh, Nidal Hassan was a doctor. Now, medical doctors are not marginalized and disaffected. They are very respected members of society. How do you go from the Hippocratic Oath to becoming a suicide bomber? I don't know that we understand it. I do, however, still believe that the key to success is engaging the community. It can't just be a government, uh, uh, government program. Now, I know there's a debate about who do you engage in the community. And this is beyond the scope of, of what I can talk about here. But some people wonder whether by engaging people who are radical and trying to get, win them over um, and somehow treating them as moderate some, because they're not violent, whether that's actually a mistake. That when people are radical, even if they're not violent, they are really the problem and not the solution. Others say that's where you have to go. Um, I, I have to say I've not made my own mind up about that. But I understand the argument, the concern, that it's very hard if you endorse somebody who has an extreme political viewpoint. The fact that they're not advocating violence doesn't mean they're not in some way enabling violence, because they may be walking people up to the threshold of becoming a suicide bomber, even if they're not actually carrying them over. So it may be, and I think that your prime minister's talked a little bit about this, that we need to recalibrate who we really regard as mainstream community leaders that we should engage with. So that's an, an interesting area for debate. On the issue of cyber, I think improvements in the internet uh, unquestionably create greater risk of cyber attacks and even, and even terrorist recruitment. Um, I, I think more fundamentally, though, we have to look at the architecture of the internet and ask ourselves whether we don't need to start rethinking some of the ways we interact on the internet in terms of promoting security. Because in the end, if people lose faith in the internet because they feel that it becomes principally an avenue for them being you know, robbed of their money or, or harmed in some other way, people are going to get off the internet. So it, um, I know the vision of a wide open, no rules, anarchic internet is still part of the culture of the internet. But I think that that emerged in an age when it was assumed that those who use the internet were all kind of professionals who were scientists who were all going to be, uh, you know, trustworthy. And I, that's plainly not true. What is cyber warfare? Well, I think that's a, uh, a concept under, under um, a lot of debate right now. I can tell you it, what I think it is. I would say that if you take steps to, to seriously damage or destroy a system, uh, a, a, particularly a physical system, but even a cyber system, 
um, that can be an act of warfare. If you, for example, um, use cyber uh, attack to bring down the uh, power grid, that could be an act of warfare. Theft of intellectual property, I would probably not regard as an act of warfare. I'd regard it as theft of intellectual property. I'm analogizing a little bit to the Cold War. During the Cold War, the Soviets spied on us, we spied on them. When we caught spies, we didn't treat it as an act of war, we treated it as espionage. But had the Soviets launched an attack and blown up something, I think we would have regarded it as an act of war. So that's my rough and ready definition, but others will have different views. Uh, well, thank you very much, Michael. We've got a, we just slightly run over, which is fine. Uh, I spent a lot of time here running a center where I tried to get people who are involved in politics and policy to reflect <laughs> critically. And I think we have somebody who can do that intuitively here. I think it was a fascinating presentation. And uh, we've benefited a lot from it. Uh, uh, he has to run off, unfortunately. Uh, he is to be interviewed by that savage interviewer, Sir David Frost, who was already a veteran 40 years ago when you were here as an undergraduate. So obviously, we've given him some limbering up for that uh, devastating interrogative performance. Uh, but can you, uh, and that's why he's going to have to move off fairly briskly, for which I think many apologies. But can you all, as uh, Michael leaves, just thank him in the traditional way for having found the time to come here and having put such thought into the discussion and been so open in the questions and answers. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.